hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we take on the topic of our most recent issue, how to deal with the expansionism of Vladimir Putin's Russia. And joining us now is the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Thomas Donnelly, director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Tom, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So let me start with a question that we perhaps have to address first because in some ways it's the predicate for the rest of our conversation. When Russia first moves into the Crimea a few months ago, the end of February, there's a notion that takes hold uh, by no means limited to Russians, by no means limited to people in the Crimea, something you heard in a lot of Western circles, and it ran as follows. Culturally, historically, linguistically, the Crimean Peninsula has all these ties to Russia. There's a certain amount of popular sympathy in the region for reuniting with Russia, and really what strategic interest could the United States have in this area that justifies justifies our getting bent out of shape about it? If we shave those lines of argument down to their core, we get the question, why should we in the United States of America care? How do you answer that? Well, I'd, I'd say there are two really compelling reasons. Um, one's uh, really tangible and material uh, in that uh, this genuinely upsets and throws into question the post-Cold War peace of Europe, which we all thought was eternal. Uh, many people had begun to believe was something that, uh, you know, was self-realizing and had sort of been given from God to man um, at some misty point uh, in the distant past. Um, and after 500 years of Europeans slaughtering one another to try to Establish that peace, and the United States doing a lot since the beginning of the 20th century to actually bring it about, that's not something that should be trifled with. And more particularly, there was an agreement at the end of the Cold War whereby the Ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapons uh, for guarantees uh, given by the United States, Great Britain, and by Russia. So changing the rules of modern Europe uh, is a very bad precedent. And and I don't think we've seen the end of what Vladimir Putin has in mind. The second is really global and kind of reputational thing, very, a little bit diff- more difficult to touch and taste and feel, but nonetheless very real. And in the context uh, of uh, recent American behavior, uh, something that our allies and adversaries around the world are beginning to question, and that's America's uh, commitment to its security uh, uh, treaties, alliances, partnerships, everything from formal treaties to longstanding and customary uh, partnerships. Uh, And since the United States is still history's only superpower, the current world's only global power, the guarantor of a very free, very prosperous and pretty stable uh, international order, that too is something that um, has consequences uh, for undercutting, or to to call that into question is to invite 
uh, much more serious consequences than simply, you know, asking people to die for Donetsk. Right, right. And one of the things, of course, that Strategica attempts to do is to put modern conflict into a historical context. And certainly when we're talking about warfare, geography matters. The lay of the land matters. And right. you talk in this issue about the importance of Europe's eastern borders, a region that uh, partially as a function of geography is plagued by a certain historical instability. I'm not sure how versed our audience is in that topic. So can you yeah. explain a little about that region and its history and how it's relevant here in regards to whatever further expansionist impulses Putin may have? Well, you know, Eastern Europe, essentially from Berlin eastward to Moscow, is just a giant open plain. There are rivers that cut through it and occasional uh, marshes, excuse me. Uh, But there's hardly any other part of the planet that's been fought over, won, lost, uh, contested again and again and again for millennia, Uh, uh, certainly for uh, the last five or six centuries. So in some ways, there's no natural defining feature uh, you know, it's not like the Alps or the Mediterranean or the Atlantic. There's no English Channel that separates Moscow from, um, uh, uh, really, from Germany. And it's it's the instability of Germany. Again, in our modern times, we tend to think of uh, a Germany, Nazi Germany, or the Kaiser's Germany, the unified Germany. Uh, of the late 19th and 20th centuries that was too big and too powerful and thus a threat to the European peace. But for the centuries prior to that, it's been German weakness uh, that's been the cause and the provocation and the prize for which Europeans have fought. And I kind of worry that the trend lines of the last decade and more are toward a Germany that's too weak to take care of itself and, and to preserve the peace of Europe. And with an American retreat, um, again, is sort of uh, an invitation to mischief, even though Russia is less powerful, objectively speaking, than either it was during the Soviet period or during you know, the Tsarist times of past centuries. Uh, it's still uh, obviously very able to cause trouble, cause mischief, and, and to intimidate not just its very weak neighbors, but a weakened Germany. Uh, and again, that could only have bad consequences, but and yeah. pretty serious bad consequences. Yeah, let me take you a little further into this point about Germany because you write in the piece – this is a quote – Putin's purpose is less to acquire this real estate at a bargain price than it is to exploit the geopolitical weakness of modern Germany, the weakness. And as you pointed out, that is not what we think of generally with Europe. We've all been conditioned to believe that the great malady affecting Europe for the past century – in fact, one of the major purposes of the design of modern Europe is to keep Germany in a box, to tamp down this this natural aggression. And as you mentioned a few minutes ago – uh, your your concern is that it's going in the in the opposite direction. What happened? To what do you attribute that difference in the German character, the German state? What, what's going on there? Uh, well, uh, it's very you know 
the proximate cause is awfully World War II and the guilt that Germans feel, uh, but also um, it, it's their feeling that they're never, you know, it's sort of the residue of success. Uh, Germans feel safer now than they ever have. And it really was the Germans who vetoed the further eastward expansion of NATO. And it's the German relationship uh, with Russia uh, that's most likely to undermine, say, the sanctions that have been put in place. Uh, uh, the close partnership between German industry and German politicians and, and Russia's leaders uh, has been a growing problem and a growing challenge uh, over the last two decades. Uh, so, again, even though Putin is objectively weak and even relatively weak, Germany's weakness is even greater. Uh, Germany's inability to act like a normal nation, to wield a political and geopolitical and military weight that's commensurate with its population, its wealth, um, you know, its, its prosperity, um, it is an invitation, you know, again, just a recipe for mischief. You mentioned the sanctions a moment ago. We did another episode for this issue with Corey Shockey. She indicated that she, while she didn't think it was a sure thing, had a fair amount of, of faith that those sanctions could work. Do you share that faith? I don't, honestly, um, in two ways. First of all, I think the ability to retain the sanctions over the time that it would take for them to work if they were going to be effective, and particularly to uh, sever the ties uh, between the Russian energy industry and particularly uh, the German market uh, is probably asking too much. And secondly, uh, you just have to ask whether the sanctions will really matter that much to the Russians. And it's not like Russian people, broadly speaking, were experiencing boom times, uh, even when oil was $100 a barrel and, and more. Uh, so um, the question is how vulnerable Vladimir Putin really would be to sanctions. Certainly, even though there's been capital flight from the Russian market and so on and so forth, uh, his poll numbers, his popularity numbers uh, among Russians have, have never been higher. The Russians seem to prefer their own dreams of greatness to the prospect of you know, capitalistic prosperity or certainly widely shared prosperity. That's the economic front. What about the military front? The further west that Vladimir Putin casts his gaze, the closer he comes to the borders of NATO. Are, are you convinced, Tom, that NATO would respond with sufficient force if Putin started creeping into their territory? Perhaps more importantly, do you think Putin is convinced? I, I, I think I, there's a question mark in his mind. I don't think that he as yet believes that we have the staying power, the sticking power, and, you know, to some degree, the American response, which has been to send 
a company each to the Baltic states and to Poland. I mean, 120 infantrymen, paratroopers, is not what you would call a devastating, uh, you know, military response. Right. And um, certainly, recent experience has probably taught him that if he just waits us out, which was certainly the case in Georgia, um, and that the things that we think he gives to us in terms of, uh, quote-unquote, helping us with in, in Syria or vis-a-vis Iran it, are much more important, at least to Barack Obama, than the fate of uh, not just Ukraine <laughs> or uh, other you know, parts of southeastern Europe, but I think make him think that in time he can begin to pull the same stunts, uh, possibly in the Baltic states. All right. But final question. You note in your piece at Strategica that the complaint that we don't have any options with regard to Russia is somewhat true because of the ways that we've constrained ourselves. I'll let you explain that. But you say that it's not that we don't have any good options is that we don't have any risk-free options. So explain what is available to us and how you would recommend that the U.S. and the West proceed going forward. Let's just cast our minds back a month or six weeks and do a hypothetical. Uh, let's imagine that President Obama has decided that uh, the annexation of or the invasion of and separation of Crimea from the rest of Ukraine was a matter that would not stand and that he needed to do something to ensure that Putin didn't go farther. And he'd only sent, uh, you know, say just a couple of brigades of American troops to police the border between Crimea and the rest of Ukraine, which is really only two roads. And then also to interpose American and other European forces uh, along the Russia-Ukraine border so that if Putin tried something, he would have bumped up against, possibly had to kill an American soldier or a German soldier or run into a NATO unit. I think at that point, uh, his he would have stopped dead in his tracks. Now, that's Militarily, very easy to do, to transport the troops, to sustain them, so on and so forth, was well within the range of the possible and the practical. It would have been a geopolitical gamble, but a military certainty. So there was an option, but it would have involved, you know, running the risk that something would have gone wrong that a local commander would have gotten out of hand or that Putin was crazy enough to push it farther. So there would be risk. It wouldn't be like, uh, you know, bombing Serbia or invading Iraq in 2003, things that we know were fundamentally sure things where nobody would be killed or no Americans would be killed functionally and barely even enemies would be killed. So um, that's what I'm talking about. It was it was geopolitically risky, bold, um, but uh, the ability to do that was undeniable. 
All right. Our guest has been Thomas Donnelly, director of the Maryland Wire Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.